A sign is a directional aid. You drive down the road and you see signs that give you aid to the things that are around you, to where you are going, and we in our study are being given aid in our understanding of what is happening during the tribulation through different signs. We find ourselves beginning chapter 13 this morning and just to get us oriented into where we are in the flow of Revelation and our text, you remember that beginning with chapter 12 uh, and really taking us all the way through chapter 15 is what we know to be an interlude, an interlude in the telling of the events of the tribulation. The events of the tribulation don't stop. It isn't that there's a, a portion in which it goes for a while, then stops, and there's this intermission kind of point so that everybody can regroup or anything like that. No, this is just an interlude in the telling of what is taking place. It's, it's a closer look, if you will. It's a, it's a, what is happening behind the scenes of the events that are coming during what we know as the seven-year period being the tribulation. That's really what we're seeing here from chapter 12 through chapter 15. And so while the tribulation is taking place on earth, chapters 12 through 15, we are, as we study it, are getting a a view of the behind the scenes kind of look. It's from the perspective of heaven that this look comes. You remember the signposts and why we called it this, because heaven is mentioned several times in those chapters, verse 1 of chapter 12, and a great sign appeared in heaven. And of course, we went through that and looked at that sign. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Of course, we looked at that. And then down in verse 7, and there was war in heaven. So there's this view from heaven taking place, and then all that occurred then over in Verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, that implies the reality of his access to heaven, which verse 10 and following says he had, and yet he was thrown out of heaven. And so again, you have this view, this perspective of what is taking place from heaven. So all of this is being told from a heavenly perspective. You remember that the Bible unfolds for us In this entire section, six, you could say seven because of those who uh, were the offspring of the woman, as verse 17 said, but really six primary players in the the telling of this interlude. Six primary uh, participants, if you will. We've already met four of them. We, We met the woman. She represents, as we learned back there in chapter 12, the nation of Israel or national Israel. The ethnic Israel. Chapter 12, we looked intently into her history. We went all the way back even before Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And we looked at the history of Israel, the hatred that Satan has had for Israel from the very beginning. Satan hates God's chosen people. That was the first player. Then secondly, we met the the male child uh, of the woman. And that is none other than Jesus Christ. Verse 5 tells us that he will rule the nation with a rod of iron. This is Jesus Christ. He came and he ascended to heaven. He is in the glories of the Father even today, yet still uh, came to earth, incarnate Son of God. This was the male child of Israel, the one born through Israel. We've also met a third person, and that is the dragon, verse 3, none other than Satan himself. In fact, verse 9 of chapter 12 tells us clearly that the dragon is Satan, and a great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan. Those are all synonymous terms. The dragon, the devil, Satan, it's all the same person. This is the great hater of God, the hater of God's plan of redemption, the hater of Christ, the hater of all of those who are uh, in Christ by faith. Satan hates every one of us who knows Jesus Christ by faith. He has always hated those who have followed Christ. Satan wants nothing more than to end the reign of Christ. It's his great goal. He wants nothing more than to be God. He wants nothing more than to usurp the plan of God, to 
to do away with it, and he'll stop at nothing less than complete eradication of Israel. Why? Because it was to Israel that God made the everlasting covenant, and it was through Israel that the Savior of the world came, Jesus Christ. Satan hates Israel. And so while Satan hates all who follow Jesus Christ, he in one sense has a concentrated hatred toward Israel and thereby toward God. Satan has always, in his heart, hated God. He rose himself up to try to be God. And ever since then, his fall, he has hated God and hated Israel. If he can annihilate Israel, get this, if he can annihilate Israel in his demented thoughts of himself, if he can annihilate Israel, then he'll annihilate the promise of God. And if he can annihilate the promise of God, if the promise of God cannot take place, then the promise through Christ cannot happen. And if Satan can thwart the, the promise of God and thereby thwart the, the promise through Christ coming about, if the promise of Christ cannot happen, then no one is saved. We sit here this morning. If Satan could thwart the plan of God through Christ that came about through the nation of Israel, then none of us have any hope. None of us have salvation, and if no one is saved, then God is not the one who has the power that he claims to have, and his promises thereby are invalid. So if Satan could do that, we have no hope, and yet that is what Satan has always been after, the complete dethroning of God himself. During the tribulation, he knows that he has just a short time left. Chapter 12 and verse 12 Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing he has only a short time. Rejoice in the heavens. Let the heavens rejoice, because the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He no longer has access to the throne room of God during this moment in time. And yet, woe to the earth. Woe to Those who dwell upon the earth. Why? Because Satan is angry. Satan is on a rampage. And he has come down to earth having great wrath. Having megas orge. Having a wrath that is seething within him. Why is he so wrathful? Because he knows he only has a short time. Because He cannot annihilate Israel. He is after any and all who know Christ, and he seeks their destruction. And so we come to chapter 13. We meet another player in the unfolding of the tribulation. We've seen him before, by the way. We know here we get a little more detail about him. I've labeled him, as you may have seen in the chapter of, or in the title of this message, A puppet of Satan. A puppet of Satan. Follow along as I read chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. And he stood on the sand of the seashore. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast and they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints, And to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. 
If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Now you understand a little bit as to why I said this will take all of our thinking faculties this morning. There is much here that causes our minds to reel with all kinds of questions. And yet here we are introduced to the fifth personality in the unfolding of the tribulation. And here he's identified as the beast. I thought about titling this message the non-beauty of the beast, but I figured that was a little too cheesy. And some of you would have been thinking about Disney and all kinds of other nonsense, and I didn't want you to do that. This is the beast. He's the main player in these verses. God is giving us here understanding concerning the beast. That's what this text is about. It's about the beast. God is here in his sovereignty. His sovereignty is here overseeing all of this because verse 7 says, and it was given to him. That's the implication there, that God is still in control. God is still sovereign over all of this. God is allowing this one to have this. It's given to him to make war with the saints. God has allowed this. But this is here so that we understand this beast to come. Satan has been thrown down to the earth. And woe to the earth because Satan is now come down. It's not simply that Satan is here. He has come down. His minions are always operative in the world. He's the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2 tells us. And yet here in chapter 12 and verse 12, he's been sent out of heaven. He has come down to to earth to dwell because he can no longer have access to God. His time is short and he is being allowed to exercise his great wrath upon all of those who are God's people. Those who are alive during the tribulation will face severe trouble because of Satan. And he'll do that through this one known as the beast. The beast. Verse 4 says they worship the dragon. Why? Because he gave his authority to the beast. In fact, they say who is like the beast? It's as if the beast has overcome even Satan. And who can be more powerful than the beast if... Even he has the power, the authority that Satan once had. The word beast is used here to describe none other than the Antichrist. As I said, we've already been introduced to the Antichrist. He was mentioned for us back in chapter 6. We're going to turn to a few passages, so you might want to get your fingers ready to do that. In chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2, it says this, And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. You say, well, That's interesting. That's an interesting verse. I remember some of what you taught when we taught there, but I don't see any words that resemble or say Antichrist. And you'd be right. But we understand prophecy. We understand revelation is prophecy and that prophecy is full of symbolism. And so by symbol, the white horse and the rider symbolize or or to say it another way, they 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 equal the personification of powers or equal the personification of forces that are released by Christ, right? Christ is the one who breaks the seal. The lamb breaks one of the seals. Christ is the one who releases this as judgment upon the earth. So when we read white horse or when you read further down red horse or black or pale horse, what we are seeing are symbols of power, power that is unleashed by Christ upon the earth. And the first is this power of deception, conquering by deception. Or to say it another way, the one who comes upon the scene is the great deceiver. You say, well, well, I don't see that either. Why do you believe the rider on the white horse is the great deceiver? 
Well, because of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24. Turn back in the old in the New Testament to Matthew 24. We have to go there because Jesus is teaching about the signs of his second coming. Jesus is giving his disciples and us directional aids as to his second coming. And we know that in Matthew 24, Jesus gives them and us this outline for what is going to take place in the final days, in the last days. So if Revelation is a picture of end times, then it ought to fit the outline that Jesus gives in Matthew 24, right? In other words, if God is the author of both and this is God's word, then what God set in a timeline should correspond to the same thing. So in Matthew 24, this ought to be a review for us because we spoke of it when I taught Revelation chapter 6, but... Jesus gives us here what is known to us as the Olivet Discourse. It's called that simply because he spoke when he was on the Mount of Olives. You'll see that in verse 3. We find here what Jesus said corresponds exactly to what happens in the vision given to John in Revelation. So notice the first thing that he says to the disciples In answer to their question, we'll just begin in verse 1 just so we have a little context. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away with his disciples. He came to a point out of the temple buildings. Uh, he, he, He came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said and said to them, he answered and said to them, Do you see all of these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. That's just a statement by Jesus. The Mount of Olives is across the Kidron Valley, so it's a short walk. They have to walk away. So between verse 2 and 3, there's this mulling over going on in the minds of the disciples about all that Jesus said, but in particular what he had just said right here. So when they get over there, as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's the same question we have, right? We think about that. Jesus tells, well, we want to understand what will be the signs of his coming. What will be the, the, the signs of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, verse 4, see to it that no one misleads you. Interesting statement. The reality is there will be a lot of misleading going on. Jesus says, listen, I I don't want you to be misled, so here you go. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they'll mislead many. So the misleading is going to come through deception, some kind of deception. So get the picture. The disciples are curious. We're curious. We're no different than them. And the disciples want to know how they'll be able to tell the start of the end. Jesus says to them, the first thing that will happen is what? Great deception. Great deception. Notice how he says it. Many will come in my name saying that they are the Christ. In other words, they'll come saying, I'm the Savior. I'm the one who you need to believe in. I'm the one who you need to follow. I am the deliverer. I'm your hope. In other words, God, by His sovereign plan, will be judging the earth by way of allowing religious deception. There will be many who will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Now keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 24 and turn over to 1 John. 1 John, Jude, and then Revel- first, second, third John, then Jude, then Revelation. So you're right near the end. You don't have to go far from Revelation. Those books aren't big at all. Because this is exactly the what John, the same author of Revelation, what John describes will happen during the end times in 1 John chapter 2. And by the way, by the way, just to help our understanding, we need to know this. The end times began, the end times began, folks, 
the day Christ came from the glories of heaven to be upon the earth. The end times began then and they have continued all the way till now and will continue until Christ comes a second time. That entire period is the end times. The whole period is the end times. We are living in the end times. And the climax of the end times will be the seven year tribulation. You say, how do you know this? Well, look, 1 John chapter 2. Verse 18 says this, children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. Notice the wording that John uses. John says it is the last hour. Hour. It is the last time already, and John is writing, notice, in the first century. Still being in the first century, John writes, it is the last hour, and we know this because many antichrists have arisen. So John is aware that it's already the last time, the last hour. Why? Because it's been that same period since the Messiah came the first time. There have always been imposters. It's been the last time for over 2,000 years now. And so John, the same writer of Revelation in 1 John 2, is confirming one of the reasons that we know it is the last time. Not only because the true Messiah came, the true Christ, not only because he came and was born, but because false Christs have also appeared. And he says there are many. Notice that? Verse 18, even now many antichrists are here by which we know it's the last time. So we know it's the last time because the true Christ has come and we know it's the last time because since that time his counterfeits are all over the place. By the way, just to kind of help our understanding a little more, the Greek word antichristos is two words really. One is a prefix, the other is the word christos and the prefix anti can really mean two things. It's the Greek preposition, and it, first of all, and most often means against, against, anti, A-N-T-I. So in the last days, John says, there will be those, many of those who are against Christ, antichristos. Anyone who is against Christ is an antichrist, little a. They are against Christ. They are anti-Christos. But the preposition anti can also mean in the place of. So it means against, and it can also mean in the place of. So in the last time, we have the reality of someone who is against Christ and also someone who is in the place of Christ. Someone stepping into that kind of ID, a Christ imposter. And I believe that is more the idea that John is describing here in chapter 2, verse 18. They are against Christ internally, but on the outside they claim to be Christ and to be like Christ. So anti-Christs are here. Now go back to Matthew chapter 24. Trying to connect some dots for us in our theological thinking so that we can just process this. Chapter 24 Jesus warns his disciples in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, we looked at that, remember, in Daniel's prophecy of the final week, in Daniel chapter 9, when you see that standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let him who is on the housetop not go down and get, get things out, That are in the house, let him who is in the field not turn back and get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babies in those days. Pray that their flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Right there in those first verses, Jesus is describing 
the end of the first half of the tribulation. Remember the peace treaty that comes to Israel, the first half of the tribulation? And then in the middle of that, the Antichrist sets himself up as God in the temple, the abomination of desolation, and then begins to, to go after Israel. And that's what Jesus is describing here, this fleet of the mountains. When you see that happen, you better be running, because for then will be, a verse 21, a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Unless those days had been cut short, 42 months, three and a half years, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. And then he says this in verses 23 and 24. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is. Don't, don't believe him. Don't do it. Why? Because false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Even the elect. So right there in Matthew 24, Jesus says you can expect pseudo-Christos. You can expect false Christs. You can expect those who are against Christ and subtly attempt to take the place of Christ. You can expect all of that. John says we're in the final days. Jesus says it's going to be heightened more and more and more. Once the abomination of desolation occurs, there will be even more heightened of that. And all of them are deceivers. In Revelation chapter 13, we see the ultimate Antichrist. This is the ultimate Antichrist. The first thing we see that John gives us is his description. His description, verses 1 through the first part of 3. And I just will break it down this way. And we're only going to get to the first part of this. But this is how I broke it down. The beast's description is this. He has a composite nature, verse 1. Secondly, he has a composite character, verse 2. And then third, he has an amazing claim, verse 3. Composite nature, a composite character, and an amazing claim. So let's just look at this composite nature of the beast. John says, I saw a beast coming up, verse 1, out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. This is his composite nature. His composite makeup, John says, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Beast is a very descriptive term. Therion is the word. It's the word for a wild animal. A wild animal. And it describes someone who is vicious. Someone who is filled with rage, as we could imagine. Chapter 12 tells us Satan is filled with rage because his time is short and he gives his authority to the beast. So no wonder the beast is described in this way. It's someone filled with rage, someone without mercy. And notice he emerges from the mass of humanity that is on the earth. John says he was coming up out of the sea. It's not the sea like the water sea. This is in scriptures, particularly in Daniel's prophecy. Sea refers to the mass of humanity, the mass of people on the earth. In fact, we read it this morning, Daniel chapter 7, the vision of these same tribulation times. And verse 3 says this, and four great beasts, maybe this was clicking in your mind as we were reading chapter 13, 1 to 10. Four great beasts came up out of the sea. And then in verse 17 of Daniel's prophecy, we didn't read it this morning, but if you go a little farther in your own reading, it says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Four great beasts risen out of the sea, and Daniel equates them in verse 17 with the reality of their four kings, their actual people, and they come from the earth. They're earthly beings. So we know the sea is being used as a symbol for humanity. And see this in other places in Isaiah chapter 12 and Isaiah chapter 57 where the wicked are like a troubled sea, it says, equating humanity with the sea. Revelation chapter 17 even says that the people or the waters are people. 
So the deceiver, this antichrist, he's vicious, merciless. This, this merciless person comes out of the sea of humanity. And I say that because you will read in your own study of this commentaries where people say, well, it's a spiritual being. It's not really a human. It's, it's even sometimes this, this, or, this governmental order and direction. Well, that's just not what the text reveals. The text reveals that it's an actual person. He is a person, he is human, he isn't some spirit being, he isn't some fallen angel, he is a human person and his nature is a composite nature. He's composite of many. In other words, he's like many combined in one. Notice what John says in verse 1, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. Each one of these, each one of these descriptions is a symbolic description of something else. Each one symbolizes some piece of some kind of political rule and dominion over people. We know that because in Scripture, horns oftentimes represent power. Horns of the animal were the symbols of that animal's power. If they had horns, they were powerful animals. And so in the Bible, horns became symbols of power. Crowns are symbols of, uh, or diadems are the symbols of crowns. That's what a, a diadem is. So you have someone who is rising up from the humanity who has both power and rule. Power and dominion over People. So what John is seeing here is a powerful ruler. The multiple horns and the multiple heads and crowns just simply tell us that he has great power, great authority, and great dominion. And we know that to be true because all of the world worships the beast in verse 4. In fact, he is the world ruler and he is incredibly powerful. This is a one-world government. We get more specific, by the way, about this and get greater understanding when you turn over to Revelation chapter 17. The bold judgments are being poured out now. We're back in time. The interlude period is done. It's behind-the-scenes look. So now in chapter 17, we're seeing it in action. And one of the seven angels of the seven bulls came and spoke with me, saying, Come, And I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Okay, And I already told you the many waters, you will see that when we get here, are people. Okay, In fact, you can see that down in verse 15. He said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, tongues. So this harlot is sitting on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And verse 3 says, And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names and having seven heads and ten horns. Sounds very familiar to chapter 13. Same description. So here's their... Here's a consistency in what John is seeing and what John is writing about. Now go down to verse 9. In verse 9, we get greater detail. He says, here is the mind which has wisdom. This is what the angel is saying. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Verse 9, we get a little more detail. Many biblical scholars that you might read believe the identity of these seven mountains or these seven kings is the city of Rome because Rome was built on seven hills. It's a seven-hilled city. But other cities are built on seven hills as well in Europe. In fact, the city of Rome has seven hills and it seems at least potentially possible that the final form of the Antichrist rule over the world could center itself in Rome. I know there's many who believe that. I certainly don't think you can be dogmatic about that. 
But it seems possible, even when you see in chapter 17, the false system of religion, that we'll see when we get there, as the mystery Babylon, a religious system. Seems plausible that this system is riding on the beast, and it would at least be, at least in our day it's probable, to see the final form of world religion sitting on the Antichrist in the city of Rome, which even in our day, has had such a great impact in world religion. But that's to speculate. That's to give info that God doesn't give us. We're not told here. But notice in chapter 17 and verse 10, what we do know, what we are told, these are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while, and the beast, which was, and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven. He goes to destruction. Seems rather intriguing, doesn't it? If you like puzzles, this is even more intriguing. John sees that there are seven heads, possibly representative of the seven mountains on which the empire could sit, possibly, but clearly they represent seven kings. We're told that in chapter 10, or in verse 10. Seven different kings. Five have fallen, and one is. At least one is, as John is writing this. Most commentators believe this is a reference to the, the past great world empires. You could look at world history and see the Five fallen world empires. You have the empire of the Egyptians that ruled the world as it was known in that day. You have the empire of the Babylonians as they ruled the world. Then the Assyrians ruled the world. The the Medo-Persians after that ruled the world. And then you have Greece that ruled the world. And if that's what we see here as the five that have fallen at the time that John is seeing this, there is one that is in existence at that time, and that one was the Roman Empire. So five plus one equals six. Possibly. The text says there is one still to come. Right? The other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while, verse 10 says. There's one still to come. Many believe that number seven will be a revived Roman Empire. A revived Roman Empire. So just to summarize really quickly so that we're not lost in our puzzle. We could say the first five were Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, and Greece. You could say that. Five empires that have come and gone. Great world empires. And then one that is, at least when John writes, that would be Rome. It's gone off the world map as an empire. It's not a ruling empire anymore. So the one that would come would be a new, a revived Roman Empire. There could even be signs of that resurgence even today. In fact, just to kind of show you this, say how so, well, there's an interesting entity in our world, especially in Europe, called the European Economic Union. Interesting, I was reading about this this week because many in years past have said there were 10 entities in the European Union. This has 10 heads, so but now there's 28 entities within the European Union, so that's been kind of put by the wayside. But I did find this interesting in reference to the European Union. The European Union has over 500 million inhabitants. They calculate this stuff. They keep track of this stuff. It represents 7.3% of the world's population, making it the second most populous democracy and the first supernatural or supranational union in the world. The European Union today, as an economic and political union, supranational and intergovernmental decision-making is used to implement common policy. In fact... The European Union law has legal supremacy over member states' laws. There's 28 member states in the European Union. 
the European Union's law supersedes member state laws and some of the EU institutions can actually act independently of member state governments in certain policy areas. So they can already make decisions as a collective body called the European Union of which these 28 nations are part of and they can make and implement laws by which all of these other nations, even though they may have laws against that, supersede all of them. Is this the beginning of the new Roman Empire? I don't know. Interesting though, isn't it? In Revelation chapter 17, it's very possible that that's the way to understand verses 10 and 11. John is seeing the final form of a global union. The beast embodies everything that was common to the first five. Everything that was common to this composite nature of Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, and Greece, and then the sixth, Rome, this composite reality of all that they encompassed and all that was theirs and all of that kind of power. And so the seventh, the seventh would possibly be this revived Roman Empire or this revived under the guise of a different name, maybe even called the European Union, that's not like any that's ever existed before. And yet it is known as an eighth because it was and is not and will soon come back, but it's part of the seven. You see that? Verse 11. The beast which was and is not and is himself also an eighth, an eighth empire, and he's one of the seven. One that already was, in other words. The beast is so powerful that we have nothing to compare him to. Nothing to compare him to except this composite nature made up of these ten and these seven heads with this power and, and these diadems. He's the sum of all the other empires that ever existed. This is one who will be more powerful than all of them put together. Ruled by the Antichrist. And this kingdom is an eighth, and yet it's of the seven. And then notice in chapter 17 and verse 12, talks about the ten horns. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. They have not yet received a kingdom, but they'll receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Ten kings again. Here we are. Same as Daniel. Here now in Revelation, we see that very same thing. These are kings. So what you see when you go back to chapter 13 is this beast, this vicious, merciless deceiver of the people. And this beast rules a worldwide global union. The final form, a a confederacy of sorts ruled by the Antichrist. And so when we see the beast rise out of the sea having seven heads, we know that this is speaking of the culmination of all the kingdoms of the past. He has the ultimate power, ultimate dominion over the earth. When it says he has ten diadems on his horns, diadem is a crown. He has has dominion. He has rule. He has power and rule over it all. Then notice what verse 1 says. And on his heads were blasphemous names. This simply says that the kingdom to come, this, this kingdom of the Antichrist, is going to be characterized by blasphemous opposition against God and against Christ. In fact, you can see that, but down in verse 6, in clarity, he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God and blasphemies Or he blasphemes his name and his tabernacle. What's his tabernacle? Those who dwell in heaven. All who are his. He's in opposition against God. He's in opposition against Christ. What a vision. I mean, we barely even jumped off into the pool. And we're swimming in a... In a puzzle that we we have to have our mind on just just to keep it all clear. It's incredible to think about what's to come, isn't it? And this person is going to dominate the entire world. 
We don't even have time to get to the second part, his composite makeup, who he is, because we go all the way back in our minds to Daniel, because the leopard and the bear and the lion are all mentioned there. So the first judgment that is pronounced by God on the earth during the second half of the tribulation, this is after the abomination of desolation has come, is this great deceiver who will arise. And there will be worldwide deception that is centered on his person. And we know it will be worldwide because the world worships him. Verse 8 says, and all who dwell on the earth worship him. So it's a a religious following, if you will. It's, It's political, and yet in the hearts of the people, they worship the one who is in power. Worldwide deception. Under the guise of the Antichrist here, under the name of the beast. You say, what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this in our minds? Well, I was thinking about that, and I thought, how, how, do, I, how do I just drive this home to us so that it's important to us, so that we just don't check out and go, yeah, yeah, well, I won't be here anyway. How do I do that? I think the best way to have that in our hearts and minds is just to turn to the words of Jesus Christ. Once again, back in Matthew 24. And just listen to what Christ said to his disciples. I mean, we could say quite often, hey, listen, we're not going to be here. We believe the church is going to be raptured. Jesus could have said, listen, guys, don't worry about it. You'll be dead long before any of this takes place. He didn't say that. He he wanted them to know, and Jesus wants us to know. So in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 23, he says, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. Why? Because false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If, therefore, they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness. Don't go there. Or, Behold, he's in the inner rooms. Don't believe it. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus says, listen, you know these things in advance. Don't be deceived. There's coming a day in our world whereby the world is going to be ruled by a man who is infinitely more powerful than any that has ever come. Jesus says, I told you about it in advance. That's where the world is headed. And by God's grace, we know of these things before they take place. And in that very news, in that very revelation of Christ to us, is the grace of the gospel. Because in those very words, you hear the words of Jesus Christ saying, don't Believe it. Believe what I've told you. Believe what I said. Believe what my Father has shown you. Believe that. Don't believe the lie. Believe upon the one whom God has sent. Believe upon Him and you will be saved. And you don't have to fall victim to the evil day. You see, in the news... Of the tribulation in the news of Jesus Christ's words about his second coming is the gospel. The reality that if you don't believe what Jesus said, you're already deceived. And if you refuse to believe what he said, you will surely follow after the false Christ. And in the false Christ is only one thing. Eternal destruction. And so even in this news, God is calling all men to come to Him 
And by way of repentance and faith, don't be deceived. Behold, I've told you these things in advance. If you know the truth, now believe. Heavenly Father, these are frightening truths to us, even as we are here this morning. For those of us who know Jesus Christ, it's frightening not because we're not secure in Christ, but because of the reality of what is to come. And it shakes us to our core and ought to motivate us with the gospel. And for those who are sitting here who don't know Jesus Christ, they face the uncertain reality of your wrath, knowing that if they reject the truth, they will face what is to come. What is to come in the temporary and yet most heinously and most horrific, what is to come eternally? That is separation from you and hell itself. And even what we read this morning pales in comparison to the very reality of hell. The tribulation will pale in comparison to what is to come for an eternity of suffering away from you. Lord, we plead with you on behalf of those that don't know you that you would wake them from their slumber that you would wake them from their deadness of soul and you would cause their eyes to be opened that they might know Jesus Christ by faith. That this be the day that they call a new day. That this be the day when life comes to their very soul. And Lord, if someone even walks out of here obstinately thinking they're saved and they're not, Father, we pray that they would be uncomfortable in themselves. That their hearts would be shaking inside in the privateness of their own heart. Even though people around them may not know it, may they in their heart be shaking that they might come to know you. That they might not continue to hold on to their sin-sick soul. That they might relinquish their grasp on it as you open their eyes and they turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Lord, let that be this day. Use these words that have been spoken as an encouragement to those who know you to share the gospel and as a crushing blow upon the hearts of those who do not. Save souls today, Lord, for the sake of your name, for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.